64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Hello. And happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor, SF Walker. I'm here to remind people to slow down, to reduce the noise, to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. And today we look at successful aging. A neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives by Daniel J. Levitin. In this video, we will look at why some people seem to age better than others. Is it genetics, personality, socioeconomic status, or just plain dumb luck? What is going on in the brain that drives these changes? What can we do to stem the cognitive and physical slowdown that accompanies aging? Many people thrive well into their 80s and 90s, while others seem to retreat from life, prisoners of their own infirmities, socially isolated and unhappy. How much control do we have over our outcomes and how much is predetermined? Stick around till the end, as I will share with you a way to understand yourself and your personality even further. A way to find out why you do the things you do. What are the hidden motivators behind the scenes? These innate human needs we're sometimes not even consciously aware of. This can help you age successfully. How well we age depends on two parallel streams. The confluence of a number of factors reaching back into our childhoods and our responses to stimuli in our environments and shifts in our individual habits. Alzheimer's disease, AD, is now a third leading cause of death in the United States. This doesn't mean we should jump to a conclusion that there's an epidemic in the making or that environmental toxins are causing it. They might be. But AD is primarily an old person's disease. Medical advancements have made it so that we are living longer, and that means we are living long enough to get Alzheimer's. Fending off Alzheimer's involves five key components. A diet rich in vegetables and good fats, oxygenating the blood through moderate exercise, brain training exercises, good sleep hygiene, and a regimen of supplements individually tailored to each person's own needs based on blood and genetic testing. Nature nurture, or lack thereof. Early 
in life affects the development of a number of brain systems selectively, such as glucocorticoid receptors in the hippocampus, which are a primary component of the stress response, part of the feedback mechanism in the immune system that reduces inflammation. Parenting affects the function of the pituitary and the adrenal glands, which regulate growth, sexual function, and the production of cortisol and adrenaline. Early traumas can last a lifetime. They, they can be overcome with the right behavioral and pharmacological interventions, but it takes some work. More cuddles and hugs go a long way particularly in the vulnerable first year of life. A third strand of successful aging, along with the environmental influences and neural development, is that we come to see old age as a unique period of growth, a life stage with its own distinct character, rather than a period of decline or a gradual turning down of the dials and knobs one by one. When older people look back on their lives and are asked to pinpoint the age at which they were happiest, what do you suppose they say? Maybe age eight, when they had few cares. Maybe their teenage years because of all the activity and the discovery of sex. Maybe their college years or the first years of starting a family wrong. The age that comes up most often as the happiest time of one's life is 82. People generally react with certain biases to the way you look. And by the time you were 12 or so, you probably recognized the pattern in how others reacted to you. Skin color, weight, and attractiveness are key determinants of how people are treated by teachers, strangers, and unfortunately the police. There's actually a way that our memories are defective. We often store only bits and pieces of events or facts, and then our brains fill in the missing pieces based on logical guesses. Again, our brains do this so often that we don't even notice that they are doing it. So much of our mental activity has gaps in it. For example, 80% of Americans say that they remember watching the horrifying television images of an airplane crashing into the first tower, the North Tower. And then about 20 minutes later, the image of a second plane crashing into the second tower, the South Tower. But it turns out this memory is completely false. The television networks broadcast real-time video of the South Tower collision on the September 11th. But video of the North Tower collision wasn't discovered until the next day and didn't appear on broadcast television until then, on September 12th. Millions of Americans saw the videos 
out of sequence. Seeing the video of the South Tower impact 24 hours earlier than the video of the North Tower impact. But the narrative we were told, and knew to be true, was that the North Tower was hit about 20 minutes before South Tower causes the memory to stitch together the sequence of events as they happened, not as we experienced them. The brain mixes up, confabulates what it really knows with what it infers, and doesn't often make a meaningful distinction between the two. When we age, we begin to confabulate more as our brains slow down and the millions of memories we hold begin to compete with one another for primacy in our recollection, creating an information bottleneck. We all have etched in our minds as true things that never happened, or are combinations of separate things that did. Underlying process is the multiple trace theory, or MTT. Every experience lays down in a unique trace, and repetition of experience doesn't overwrite the earlier trace. They simply lay down more near identical, but unique traces of their own. The more traces that there are for a given mental event, the more likely you'll recall it, and that you will recall it accurately and rapidly. This is how you learn things, by repeating them, by playing around with them, exploring them, laying down multiple related traces of the concept, experience, or skill. We need to somehow separate out the learning experiences a person has had, knowledge acquisition, from their innate ability to use whatever information they have. Scientists call the things you've already learned crystallized intelligence, and they call your potential to learn fluid intelligence. Acquisitional intelligence, now that's the speed and ease with which you can acquire new information, if given the right opportunity. Think of it as coming before both crystallized and fluid intelligence. You can't amass a store of learned information quickly without acquisitional intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is the knowledge you have already acquired, regardless of how easy or difficult it was for you to obtain it. It includes things such as your vocabulary, your general knowledge, your skills, and any mathematical rules or formulas you might have learned. It is heavily dependent on culture, because certain kinds of knowledge are valued more than others, depending on where you live. Fluid intelligence is your ability to apply any information you have, whether it's extensive or not, to new concepts. It is your unique ability to reason, to think, to identify patterns, and to solve problems. We all know people who have a remarkable retention for what they have learned, and can learn quickly, but lack the ability to apply that information. They would be high in crystallized, but low in fluid intelligence. Some people with photographic memories are like that. Emotion, motivation, reinforcement, and arousal are closely related topics, and often appear together in neuroscientific research. Emotions evolved because they motivate us. 
they are that surge of something, arousal. You feel welling up in you that makes you want to take some kind of an action. They move us away from danger and toward food, dry shelter and potential mates. Key elements that positively reinforce our identities. It is no accident that the word motion is contained in the word emotion. Now, is it a coincidence that when we are feeling particularly deep emotion, we say that we are moved? Emotions come about in a way that is exactly the opposite of what we usually imagine. You think that you see a snake, you feel fear, and then you jump back to avoid it. But snakes are fast, and your conscious analytic brain is slow. If you waited for your brain to determine that a rustling in the grass was a snake, it would be too late. You would be bitten. Instead, a subcortical, subconscious process moves you out of the way rapidly. Only then does your brain figure out that you have jumped and signal to you you're afraid. This all happens so quickly that you think it happened in the opposite order. Do me a favor, and in the comments below, do let me know, were you aware of this simple yet profound truth? Happiness is an odd construct. It is a highly subjective variable and a dependent on a number of factors, such as culture and expectations. It is also finishly relative, context-dependent. And based on social comparison theory, this is the idea that you gauge your own happiness in comparison with those around you who are doing, or more materialist, materialistically, what they have and you do not. Few of us today would find a 1919 Model T comfortable. But if you had one in 1919, it was more comfortable than a horse and more convenient than walking. It is relative. The one constant of happy people seems to be that they don't think about happiness. They're too busy doing things and being happy to stop and think about it. Happiness, therefore, is a judgment made in retrospect. Humans are adaptable, resilient. We bounce back. Happiness is a personal perception. And its determinants differ vastly across cultures. Most quality of life combines objective measures, such as health, independence, standard of living, and security, example, freedom from crime. Whereas subjective matter, measures, such as a person's own self-assessment of their satisfaction about a number of key components of their lives, freedom of choice, social relationships, romantic relationships, meaningful work, and mood. Let's look at health span versus disease span, the amount of time you're able to avoid declining health and live a fully productive, self-sufficient life. There's a parallel concept called productivity span that can apply not just to the arc of your life, but also to the arc of a single day. There are times of day when you are at your best and other times when you are not. We have different chronotypes. Write in the comments, what is your chronotype. <coughs> Hydration is something most of us don't think about. 
but it is essential for cellular and brain health. Often if you notice yourself feeling fatigued, this is the first sign of dehydration. Other symptoms include headaches and nausea. Dehydration is a medical condition. It is not thirst. Thirst is just a symptom that may or may not be present when you are dehydrated. Dehydration is deadly. It is the second leading killer of children under four worldwide and the eighth leading cause of death among adults over 70. Intuitive eating, developed by registered dietitian Evelyn Trebol, has been associated with reduced body mass index, reduced cholesterol, lower blood pressure, and improved psychological health. Intuitive eating. Mallory Frayne, a doctoral student at McGill University, studies people's experiences and frustrations with most diets. She says, why don't diets work? First off, the fact that a multi-billion dollar diet industry still exists suggests that there's something fundamentally broken about the way we look at food and eating. We take some expert's advice how we should treat our body. We try it for a bit before it inevitably fails, and then we move on to the next greatest thing. All the while, the behind-the-scenes bigwigs are making a pretty healthy chunk of change off of our collective struggle. Diets don't work because they're based on restriction. The big idea of the intuitive dieting is that your body knows what kind of food your body needs. That is, it has an intuitive drive towards protein, carbs, and fats you can trust. Or perhaps it's the trillions of microbes in your gut that send signals to your brain to generate that intuitive drive. Maybe your body knows what it wants to eat. The four additional principles of intuitive dieting are try to eat when you are hungry, try to stop when you are no longer hungry, learn to cope with emotions in alternative forms other than eating, and place no restrictions on types of food eaten unless for medical reasons. Intuitive eating involves a reframing of eating for physical rather than emotional or social reasons. Thus, knowing that any food option is on the table, so to speak, makes you less likely to binge eat the forbidden foods, cultivating a less obsessive, healthier relationship with food, and allowing the body to experience a healthy variety in moderate amounts of all the foods that are available to us. There are many factors under our control. Diet, gut microbiota, social networks, sleep, regular visits to the doctor. But the single most important colorate of vibrant mental and physical health is physical activity. This doesn't mean the other colorates, diet and sleep, aren't important. They are. And it doesn't mean that if you engage in more physical activity, you don't need to follow other healthy practices. What it does mean is that you might want to take this seriously, but 
particularly if, like many people, your attitude about getting active is, yeah, yeah, I'll start tomorrow. Sleep is restorative. While you're unconscious of what is going on around you, possibly immersed in a world of dreams or weird thoughts, your entire body and brain chemistry change. Cellular repair and cleansing mechanisms kick into overtime. Wound healing and fighting off bacterial and viral infections increases in intensity. It is only recent that we have begun to appreciate the enormous amount of cognitive processing that does occur while we are asleep. Consolidation of memories takes place alongside problem solving, categorization, and emotional processing. Even brief meditation reduces fatigue and anxiety and increases visual and spatial processing, working memory and executive functioning. And in many cases, these benefits persist even after meditation practices stop. Meditators show lower levels of cortisol following a stressful task and decreased inflammation, not just during meditation, but day to day. And the benefits show up after as little as four weeks or 30 hours of mindfulness practice. The ideal doctor-patient relationship is this. You want to have a doctor who knows you and your family, who knows not just your history, but your personality, your habits, your hobbies, who knows how you live and how you spend your time. All of this informs medical decisions, making differential diagnoses. A physician who has to treat without this context is very much handicapped. Context matters. If the environment can modify gene expression, epigenetics, then it stands to reason that the context with which a person lives is not only important, but critical to understand. The patient-doctor diet is a dialectic that grows over time and allows the doctor to more fully appreciate the subtle nuances of behavior and psychology and physiology that can signal disease or lack of health. The single most important factor in determining successful aging is the personality trait of conscientiousness. Adopting new lifestyle choices is difficult, but if you remember why the lifestyle change is important, you're more likely to stay with it, even when your motivation flags a little bit. Three additional factors that determine how well we age are more important than the rest. The first is childhood experiences, in particular of parental attachment and of head injury. The second most important factor in retaining mental vitality later in life is to exercise in varied natural environments. You don't need to run marathons, power walking, in a park or in a forest, fast enough to get your heart rate up and your brain full of rich oxygenated blood is the goal. The varied environment will stimulate your brain 
and in particular hippocampus, the seat of memory. The third most important factor is social interaction. <coughs> Interacting with others is amongst most complex things we can do with our brains. It could be through playing music with them, playing bridge or golf, acting in community theater, reminiscing or discussing literature in a book group. Nearly every part of our brains is activated by interacting with others live, face to face, in real time. 84-year-old Gloria Steinem was asked, who are you passing the torch to? Nobody, she said laughing. I'm holding on to my torch. I'll let other people light theirs from mine. Hold on to your torch. Do not go gently. And don't forget to laugh. Whatever's going on around you, remember to laugh. And there you have it. Please, do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share too and spread the word. Leave a comment and share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So buy it and read. Never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website and find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management and relationship management even further, do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. Links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.